Amen. Good morning. How are we doing, Epiphany? Anybody come to exalt the name of Jesus Christ? Amen. Well, what a delight and honor it is to be back in the house of God, back with you guys. There is no other place I'd rather be than here with Epiphany Church in Brooklyn, New York. This morning, I, I woke up with, uh, with Lamentations 3 on my mind, uh, where, where it really talks about the steadfast love of the Lord, how it never ceases. And then it goes on to say, every single morning, we are, uh, we are met with new mercy and new grace. The only people that are excited about that know that they've messed up the day before. And when you know that you really should have been taken out in your sleep, but you were met at the threshing of a new morning with new mercy and new grace, that tends to birth some type of worship in your heart. So can we thank God for new mercy? New mercy and new grace. Well, shout out to uh, the worship team. Thank God for Aaron and Tiffany being up here from our mother church. Amen. Many people don't know this, but the, the last song that they just sang is, is literally my favorite, uh, it's my favorite worship song, and Aaron actually wrote the song. Uh, so we are grateful for Aaron and Tiffany being here. Amen. They're here, and they're giving Chris and Tashina a much-needed break. Let me say that again. They need a break. They need a break. They need a break. Thank God that they worship here every single Sunday, and they lead us every Sunday. Amen. You know, we have, a, we have a very low honor culture. We don't honor people enough. And so we thank God for their faithfulness. Not just, I mean, before anybody was even a part of the church, uh, they were sitting in my living room in Philadelphia, and we were dreaming about what it would look like to plant a church. And so I'm, I'm thankful for them. Well, uh, listen, we are back in our First Peter series. So why don't you grab your Bibles and meet me in First uh, Peter. Shout out to the other folks from Philadelphia that are here. Y'all wave your hand. Amen. They're over in this area. All right, 1 Peter 3, we are in 1 Peter. Uh, as I promised you guys, we are going through the book of 1 Peter. And I told you guys we were going to take a break, a short break, throughout the month of August, just because there was vacations and we had guest preachers. And so uh, to be back in 1 Peter, I'm excited to be back in 1 Peter. And uh, I am not planning on being absent for a while now. So we will make good traction through the book of 1 Peter. Here's my goal. My goal is to finish the book of First Peter by uh, before Thanksgiving. That's my goal. I, I can't, don't hold me to it. But the goal is to really work our way through it through the rest of this month, all of October and the beginning of November. Uh, and, you know, just want to prepare ourselves for our Advent season. Christmas is coming up. And so we want to spend the whole month of December on an Advent series like we did last year. Really just talking about what the, what the birth of Christ is. I mean, Advent literally means the arrival of a notable person. Uh, and, you know, I, I know as soon as Christmas is over, our culture starts to celebrate the next Christmas. Like they put up Christmas stuff so early these days. But, um, you know, we really want to we, we really want to get ourselves a, a little bit out of the Christmas spirit and really focus on the person of who Christmas is about. And so we'll spend December doing an Advent series. And uh, just to push us into next year, we'll do our Vision Sunday at the beginning of next year and uh, a small series on, I think, the Holy Spirit. We're going to do a small series on the Holy Spirit. Uh, hopefully he's present. We'll do a small <laughs> series on the Holy Spirit. And, uh, and then we'll jump back into another book of the Bible, hopefully an Old Testament book. 
Uh, I've been praying about uh, a few books, and Habakkuk is really drawing my, my heart. And I know some of y'all are like, Habakkuk? Is that even in the, in the Bible? It's three rich chapters in that book. And so I pray that you guys will, uh, you know, just be ready for what we are uh, doing here in the pulpit. And I don't know if you guys know, man, but we started our church on Bible studies. We started our church trying to be faithful to the word of God. In fact, when we moved into this space, when we first started, we were in an event space uh, on Putnam. And then we moved over to Nostrand Avenue. When we moved in this space, we literally ripped up the carpets and um, and before we painted, we wrote scriptures all over the walls. We wrote scriptures all up there. Psalms 119 is somewhere right here. And so we wrote scriptures all over the place. And, and the, the, the goal of it was to make sure that we're building our foundation on the word of God. And so I, I pray that you guys will be serious about our time in the word of God. And I pray that your devotional life will go beyond this 40 minutes that we have right now. But that you would walk out and actually dig into the word of God yourself uh, listen, the other thing I've been praying about is for all of our teachers and our students, our kids that have gone back to school and our principals. So you guys hold them up. Anybody work in a school or have kids that go into school? All right. We got principals over here, teachers, social workers. So we want to keep them lifted so that they would have a good year. Uh, before I jump into the text, let me also solicit your prayers. I went back to school. So y'all be praying for me. Amen. I need y'all. I need y'all screaming when it's time to do that homework. I need y'all <laughs> coming to help me. I'm, I'm serious. It's been it's been a, a little difficult to just try to figure out what the rhythm is. Uh, I, I got my in 2012. I graduated with my bachelor's in Bible with a concentration on discipleship counseling. Uh, but I just went back to school for my MABS, my Master's uh, of Arts in Biblical Studies. Well, hopefully, learning the languages. Uh, you guys, you guys look spiritual, so you probably know. <laughs> that the Bible is written in two, well, three different languages. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek. And there's a little Aramaic in Daniel and in the book of Ezra. Uh, and I'm going, I mean, the, the goal of me going back was to learn the languages, particularly Hebrew and Greek. And so I, I am uh, in the middle of a Greek course that is, I, I kid you not, is kicking my butt. So when you guys think of me, I pray that you uh, would lift up a prayer to the Lord uh, on my behalf. All right, pick me up in verse 13. Of chapter 3, 1 Peter chapter 3. The last time we were in chapter 3, we ended at verse 12, so now we will pick it back up in verse 13. Here's what the Word of God says Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. You should underline this phrase because we fail at this, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that, you are, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Verse 17, our last verse. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. I simply want to preach from the topic today entitled, When Your Good is Met with Hostility. When Your Good is Met with Hostility. Let's look before the Lord. Father, what a privilege it is for us to engage your word this morning. Psalms 119, 105 is clear that your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We are clueless on the direction of our lives if we do not bump our lives up against your word. 
Thank you for the counsel of friends and, uh, and family members. But Father, we need the counsel of your word today. If we are really, really going to figure out uh, what direction we should go, we go with in life. So, Father, will we walk out of here today and be doers of the word, not hearers only, lest we deceive ourselves? I personally pray this morning, Lord, for endurance. I pray for uh, compassion. I pray for strength. I pray for boldness. I pray for gospel clarity. Uh, Ultimately, what I'm praying for is the Holy Spirit to move. So, Father, would you move in this room, not just on me, but on the hearts of your people? We cannot hear your word if the Holy Spirit does not move the spiritual earwax out of our ears. So, Father, this morning, get at us through your word. Convict us and encourage us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. When your good is met with hostility. Let me start today's sermon a little differently than I typically start. I typically start the sermon uh, with some type of story or illustration just to draw our attention in on the focus of the passage. Uh, but let me start today a little differently. Let me start with two disclaimers. First disclaimer is um, the sermon will be a little bit more academic than normal today. Uh, It's not because I just started school, but it it, it is because of uh, Peter's flow of the passage. It just tends to be a little bit more academic today. Um, The second disclaimer is probably a little bit more shocking. Uh, Let me just go ahead and say it. I am not qualified to preach this passage. Now, before you look at me with those judgmental eyes and point your finger up here and say, well, why are you up there preaching it? Uh, Let me just go ahead and put you on blast that you're not even qualified to hear it. You're not. And the reason the reason none of us in this room are qualified to preach it, nor are we qualified to hear it is because we don't understand persecution. We live in a Western world. We live in America. I am an American pastor that uh, lives a reasonably comfortable life in comparison to some of the suffering and persecution of our brothers and sisters in different parts of the world. We do not understand in this room the full impact of what persecution is. We think persecution is my lights was cut off. That's not persecution. That means you need to pay your bill (laughs) to keep your lights on. But today in the text... Peter is going to really hit home today. Here's the reality. I've never been punched in my face for reading the word of God openly. I've never been spit on for communicating the gospel. I've never been tortured for talking about Jesus. I've never been thrown in jail for doing a Bible study. Been thrown in jail before, but I'm not going to share that one with you. I'll keep that one uh, to myself. But the reality is, not only have I never been tortured for preaching the gospel or communicating the things of Christ None of you have. Now, let's be real. Some of you may have suffered. So I'm I'm certainly not saying that we are absent from suffering. What I am saying is the persecution that is going on in the text, you know nothing about. You really don't know anything about it. And yeah, maybe you've suffered. but, But the reality is the most the person in here who has who has experienced the most difficult circumstance in life still has it a lot better than the brothers and sisters in the text today told you guys that first Peter was written in the first century it was written between uh, uh, 60 and 65 AD. And if you know your history between 60 and 65 AD, who was the Roman emperor at the time? Emperor Nero. Somebody said it. I'm so proud of you. <laughs> emperor Nero was the, was, the, was the emperor of this time. And if you know anything about the Roman regime, they were brutal. They were evil. And he was a wicked, wicked emperor to the point where he would literally take Christians put them on a cross, set them on fire just to illuminate the streets for the night. 
And so we are talking about a evil, evil emperor. So when you think about the persecution of Christians being thrown on a cross, burned so that they could light up the evening parties, what persecution have you received? Our persecution pales into comparison when we look at the persecution of the men and women in the text today. But even though we have never paid this type of price that uh, the, the men and women of this time have paid, we do have something in common in the text. And here's what we have in common. We are all called to let our lives represent the gospel in the face of hostility. That's what we have in common with the text. In fact, that is the very theme of what Peter is talking about in our passage today. And he seems to suggest in the passage, when you are facing hostility, really there's three ways to live. Good behavior, gospel clarity, and Christ's lordship. That's the text. Like we literally can say amen and go home. That is what Peter is going to push today. He's going to say, listen, your behavior in the face of hostility matters. Gospel clarity in the face of hostility matters. Christ's lordship in your life in the face of hostility absolutely matters. And so when your good is met with hostility, what do you do? Now, let's be honest. We live in a hostile world. Don't, don't get it twisted. We ask, that's the one thing every religion can agree on. I don't care if you believe in Jesus or if you don't. All of us agree that something has gone terribly wrong in the world. I mean, you can look at the hurricanes that are hitting in the southern part of Florida right now. You can look on the news and see the earthquake that hit in Mexico last night, uh, uh, earlier this week, and you can conclude that something is wrong with creation. But not only creation in the weather, but you. Humans, something has gone drastically wrong with us. Now, here's the difference between our religion and other religions. We can point back to a specific time where things went wrong. Genesis 3. Like there's 1189 chapters in the Bible. There's only two chapters that shows man in complete, complete relationship with the Lord. Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 3 on is a mess. Like and it progresses. It gets worse. Like you get to chapter six. I mean, first think about this. In chapter three, sin enters the world. Chapter four, you got the first murder. Like you couldn't even wait a couple chapters before you kill somebody. And then by the time you get to chapter six, it says every intention of man's heart was on evil continuously. Like the word of God says that our hearts are set on evil continuously. And so when we're talking about hostility in the world, I do not want you to walk out and say the world's not that bad. No, people are hostile to the things of God. And it's just that simple. Look at the words that Peter decided to use in our text today for the hostility of the world. I'm just going to run through them. Verse 13, he uses this word. He says harm. Verse 14, he uses this word suffer. Verse 14, he says fear. Verse 14, he says troubled. Verse 16, he says slandered. Verse 16, he says revile. Verse 17, he says suffered. Listen, the world we live in is a hostile world. The things that you are facing up against, you have to realize spiritual warfare is real. And we are living in a hostile world. But here, here, here's the reality. What is our response supposed to be in the midst of a hostile world? Are we supposed to meet hostility back with hostility? Someone said, yeah, not yet, but Peter says in the text, the opposite. I know you weren't saying yeah to that. Peter says the opposite in the text. Peter says the way we meet hostility is with kindness. 
The way we meet hostility is with goodness. In fact, here's the words he uses to describe your behavior in a hostile world. Verse 13, zealous for what is good. Verse 14, righteousness. Verse 15, hope. Verse 15, gentleness. Verse 15, respect, or as the famous theologian Birdman to say, respect with a K on it. <laughs> Verse 16, good conscience. Verse 16 again, good behavior. Verse 17, doing good. We have a responsibility in the text to do good in the midst of hostility. But most of us do not do that. We're believers in Christ, but we say, now nah, I'm going to get you back because you got me. No. How about we do good for the person that got us back? And that will keep burning coals on their head. That's Proverbs. Let's get back into the text. Let's look at verse number 13. Verse 13 says this. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Let me lift up the first word. Now. Told you I'm learning a language called Greek and the New Testament was written in that language. And this word now is an interesting word. word. It means and it could mean because or, or but and it could mean therefore. And I, I told you guys numerous of times and actually heard the sermon from last week. And Pastor AJ said the same thing. Anytime you see in the text the word therefore, you must automatically ask yourself, what is the therefore? Therefore. I, man, listen, we, y'all are killing it. I'm just... <laughs> So y'all should be up here preaching today. Anytime you see a therefore in the text, you have to ask yourself, because what the writer is doing is he's connecting a preceding thought. He's not starting just some new random thought that's isolated from the rest of the scriptures. No, he's connecting a thought that he had. So when we start with the text saying now or therefore, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is doing good? Do not read verse 13 in isolation. Verse 13 is connected to verse 12. Now, yes, we didn't read verse 12 today, but in verse 12, Peter makes it clear that the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. So as we're thinking about a hostile world, the Lord is like, yeah, but my eyes are on you. Not only that, but then it goes on to say his face is against those who do evil. And so, yes, you may be experiencing hostility from the world, but the God who created everything looks down at you and he says, my eyes are on them. And then he looks at the one that's hostile against you and says, my face is against that person. In this text, Peter is really pushing what, what you would call an eschatological view of, the, uh, of, of things. He's not looking at persecution and harming you right now. Because of the present, the, the future tense participle he uses in verse 13, he's pointing us to a future reality. He's saying in the text, this is what the, the rhetorical question is, at, is answering in verse 13. Verse 13, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is doing good? He's talking about who is there to harm you on the day of judgment. As you stand before the Lord, who can harm you? Here's how Jesus puts it when he was with his boys, a.k.a. the disciples. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. He said, do not fear those who can kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. But rather, fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body. And most commentators will agree that Peter right now is pointing us to a future reality that the day that we stand before the Lord, no one will harm you. Now, yes, you may receive persecution right now. Yes, you may be suffering right now. Yes, you may have hardship right now. But the day you stand before the Lord, when the trumpet sounds and you're standing before God, you have nothing to fear. You will not be harmed if you've trusted in Jesus. And if you have not, the harm is going to be turned up for you. 
But those who have trusted in Jesus, we don't, we don't have anything to fear. Here's how Paul would put it in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. I do not stand before God the Father and am fearful that I'm going to be met with wrath. The believer that has trusted in Jesus is never met with wrath. You are not harmed. Why? Because Jesus was harmed. Jesus was met with wrath. This is called the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Basically, he took your sin, put it on Jesus, and crushed him. And not only did he crush them, but I love that, that God wants to let us in on his emotion while he did it. The scripture in the Old Testament says it pleased the father to crush the son. Why? Because he knew that it was going to bring a right relationship with you. And so the text tells us this morning, who is there to harm you? If you are zealous for what is good, zealous for what is good, zealous for what is good. Our thought process in this life should be zealous for what is good. And the assumption made in the text is that non-believers are watching your good behavior. That's the assumption made in the text. So your non-believing friends are watching your behavior. Your non-believing co-workers are watching your response to the hostility. The family members that you would love to cuss out are watching your behavior. And the text tells us our behavior should be zealous for what is doing good. I, I'm told of a story of a pastor that was putting up a fence in his front yard. And as he's putting up the, uh, this fence, this little boy comes and stands at the edge of the grass and just watches him. So the pastor thought that this young boy was there to see some, pick up some handyman tips. And so he starts to work even better on this fence. And finally, he completes the fence and he looks at the little boy and he says, are you here to watch me put up this fence so that you could see how to put up a fence when you get older? And he says, no, I, I'm here because I want to hear the words that a pastor uses when he hits his thumb on the hammer. What is true of this little boy is true of the world. The world is watching your behavior. They're watching your response. They're watching how you do. They're watching how you receive hostility and how you receive slander and how you receive the fact that you were reviled. The text tells us we should be zealous for what is good. Can someone who does not know Jesus see the gospel smeared on your life? Can someone who doesn't know Jesus find Jesus because of your demonstration, not your proclamation? Now, let me just tell you now, I'm not, and I mean this wholeheartedly, I am not impressed with the person that can communicate the gospel with great eloquence. Eloquence. I'm not. I'm just not. In fact, man, let me give you my story. The guy, you guys have heard my, uh, my conversion story. I was saved in the parking lot of a church because a friend decided to share the gospel with me. And the, and the friend that shares the gospel with me, it, it's crazy. His life now doesn't match his gospel witness. So do not tell me that just because you can share the gospel, just because you can communicate, just because you can quote some scripture, that you are living up to what's zealous for what is good. That doesn't mean you're living up to it. That just means you're well studied. Yes. We're smart sinners. That's what we are. You're a smart sinner. The reality of the fact is your life should match your lips. If you can communicate the gospel, you should be able to live it. If you can communicate the gospel, you should, it shouldn't just be demonstration. It should be proclamation. So I'm not impressed. I'm not impressed if, you, if you've read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. I, I could care less if you know all of the tulip, you, total depravity, unconditional election. Let me talk to you about limited atonement and irresistible grace. I'm going to talk to you about perseverance. Of the day. I could care less. What does your life say? Are you zealous for what is good? That's what I'm impressed with. Let's look back at the text, verse 14. But even 
If you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled by them. Peter began our time by ultimately telling us in verse 13 that when we stand before the Lord, at some point, there is nothing to harm you. And if you read verse 13 in isolation, you will conclude that verse 13 and 14 are contradictions of one another. You can read verse 13 and say, who is there to harm you? And then read verse 14 and say, wait, but I am going to be harmed. Because verse 14 is very clear. I mean, look at the words he uses. But even if some should, should suffer. So there's a possibility that you might suffer. Wait, verse 13 just told me that nobody's going to harm me. So you know verse 13 is pointing toward the end times. Reality is verse 14 says, on this earth, you might suffer. I know you've, when you've listened to TBN and, and they say you come to Jesus and you'll have no more suffering. No, reality is it's actually the opposite. You come to Jesus and he turns it up. You come to Jesus and he presses down on you, he pushes his thumb on you because that's part of sanctification. Do not run away from suffering. So the text tells us, no, you might suffer. But notice the words he uses in the same sentence that he uses suffering. He uses the word blessed. How in the world do you use in the same sentence the word blessed and suffering? What blessing is there in suffering, the text seems to suggest that Peter is really building on what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember Jesus in Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 to 12, he says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. This is crazy. Rejoice and be glad. How am I going to rejoice and be glad in the midst of being slandered? Jesus goes on to say, for your reward. Here it is. Eschatological. Your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Once again, Peter, just like Jesus, pushes us to persecution being done with at some point. The reward here is heaven. And whenever you are going through, whenever you have heaven as your focus, it really takes the strength out of suffering. When you have heaven as your goal and as your aim in the midst of this life, there is nothing you could go through that will make you depressed because heaven is your goal. When I was in high school, I played, I played football all four years of high school. And in the off season, we had a, I mean, a very strict coach guy by the name of John Amabile, and he would make us meet down at the, the Jersey Shore. He'd make us meet down at the, the beach, and he'd make us run up and down the beach. He put us on a strict workout regimen. I know you can still see the fruit of that. You know, my guns, are, <laughs> they're covered up today, but I got something up under there. My coach would put us on a strict regimen, a strict workout regimen, and we endured pain, the pain of working out because we did it in the off-season because we had a goal that we were going to be back in the, a new season. And so we endured the pain of working out and we would often say to one another, it's going to pay off when we get on the football field. Reality is the things that you're going through in life right now, you need to have a better, farther view of things in your life. And you need to say, but heaven's my goal. This is why I can't do books like your best life now. I just can't. Like, I don't understand. The only person that can say your best life is now is somebody that's going to hell. How am I, where, where am I getting that from? How is your best life now when we have heaven as our goal? Doesn't make sense. Our best life is not now. No, we will suffer in this lifetime. 
You will have hard times in this lifetime. And I will not be that pastor that sits up here and says, no, it, it won't be that bad. No, it will be that bad. But hold on to Jesus Christ, because at some point when he comes back and returns for you, revelations will tell me there'll be no more weeping. There'll be no more sadness. There'll be no more sickness. Somebody should say amen right there because we have heaven as our goal. And Peter pulls out in verse 14 after he changes our idea of what suffering is and uses the word blessed in the same text. He then gives us two implications. He says, and have no fear of them. And then he says, nor be troubled by them. Both really are meaning the same thing. And this is not a suggestion. Peter is not saying, I think it's a good idea for you not to be troubled by them. It's not what Peter is saying. He's commanding us not to be troubled by them. He's commanding us not to be fearful of those that are hostile against the things of God. And the reason he can say this with confidence is because once again in our text, Peter is reaching back to the Old Testament to lean on it for comfort. Right now, this is the sixth time in this book that Peter has quoted the Old Testament. He is literally pulling a verse out of Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12 and 13, and applying it to their suffering right now. And in the midst of applying it, and he uses it in context, too. That's, why I, that's what I love about Peter. He's not taking this verse out of context because in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 12 and 13, where it was originally quoted, it was talking about the southern kingdom of Judah being threatened by the northern kingdom of Israel. And he says, have no fear. And so really what he's pushing to you is do not be fearful of those that persecute you. Do not be fearful. Nick, can you imagine how hard that is for the readers to hear during this time? He's like, don't be fearful of them. And I'm, I'm guessing that this is something that Peter is learning, that Peter is growing in. The reason I say that is because, like, remember when Jesus died and Peter's warming his hands by the fire and a young lady sees him and she says, wait, 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 you're with Jesus. He's a Jesus follower. Remember, Jesus denied, Peter de- denies Jesus three times. Fear of man, fear of man, fear of man. And so Peter is not writing this as somebody who has aced the test. Peter is writing this as somebody who is probably launching this, these words off of the platform of disappointment to the fact that he messed this up. Here's the reality. Peter is saying to us this morning, do not be fearful of them. It says here, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Verse 15, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone. Listen to this, who ask you, make a defense to anyone who ask you. This lets me know the fact that they're asking implies that they're curious about you. The fact that they're asking means that they saw your good behavior in the midst of hostility and they wanted to inquire, how in the world do you have hope? Your family members were probably beheaded for this Jesus Christ. How do you have hope? Their lives caused questions in the people that were hostile to them. Has anybody in this room ever had someone come up to them and actually ask them, what is this Jesus that you that you live for? Why is it that you're not plumb crazy? Like I saw what you went through. How is it that you are still surviving? The Bible says that they will ask you. And when they ask you, this is crazy. You must be prepared. The Bible says to give a defense. You must be prepared to talk about Jesus. Once again, the, 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 the assumption made in the text again is that because they're asking means they're watching your life. 
Once again, this shows us that they are watching. I was reading my devotional app, and in the devotional app, it was this story of this young lady. It was, it was very intriguing. This young lady that uh, decided she was going to figure out which religion was true between Christianity and Islam. And so what she said was, I'm going to go live with Christians for three months. And then I'm going to go live with a Muslim for three, one, three months. And neither one of them, I'm going to tell them what I'm doing. So she goes to this Christian household. It's a true story. She goes to the Christian household and she hires herself out as house help. And she just watches them. She doesn't tell them what she's doing. She's watching how they pray. She's watching what they say. She's watching how they treat her. And at the end of the three months, she said she told the Christian family what she was doing. And their response was, why didn't you tell us in the beginning? Because they begin to think back to times they were short with her. They were cruel, cruel to her. There were times where they didn't pray. And so now this woman is about to go to a Muslim household and see how they live. The reality is people are watching you. They said, and the text says, they're going to ask you. If they see good fruit from your life, they will ask you. And then the text goes on saying, when they ask you, you must give a defense. This word defense is an interesting one. In the Greek, it's apologia. It, it literally means uh, to, to give a legal defense, to make a legal case, to be a lawyer for Jesus. That's what it's really, that's what it's saying here, that you should be able, if somebody comes up to you and asks you about the hope that's in you, your response should be like a legal case. You can lay it out before people. And this call to make a defense to what we would call apologetics, what it really is suggesting to us is that this isn't a call to just pastors. This is not a call to just leaders. Everybody in this room that has trusted in Jesus should be able to make a defense for Jesus. Everybody in this room, I don't care if you just trusted in Jesus, you should be being discipled into how to make a defense for the hope that's in you. When people ask you about Jesus, you should be able to not just say, well, he died for my sins. No, the Bible says make a legal defense, make a case for Jesus Christ. And the reality is most of us can't make a case because we don't really have a devotional life outside of Sunday mornings. Let's be honest. The reason we can't make a case is because we really don't open our Bibles beyond just this time on Sunday mornings. Some of you opened your phone and, and the text was still on the sermon that was preached last week. Meaning you didn't dig into the word of God all week long. I don't understand how Christians can live their lives and not get in the word of God. Well, like what direction do we have? What hope do we have? What comfort do we have? We find it in scripture. These are the very words of God. Second Timothy chapter three, verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God. You want to hear from God, you open your Bible. Nothing mystical, nothing spooky. And what we do in devotional times is we wait for some climactic moment. But every moment in the text isn't climactic. Sometimes you're storing up weapons for later. Sometimes you're storing up when the enemy comes against you and that spiritual warfare happens. You can say, wait, I I remember, I read about this. Bible says here, make a defense. Make a defense for Jesus. Lay out the gospel for people that are in your life. And and the crazy thing is the text doesn't just tell us to make the defense. It tells you your attitude when you're making the defense. Look back at the text with me. Verse 15, but in your hearts honor Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Here it is. Yet with gentleness and respect. Most of us in here have killed opportunities to share the gospel with people because we would rather make a point than actually love on that person. We wanted to win the argument. And so we wanted to talk deep theology when all they needed was the gospel. 
All they needed to hear about was Jesus Christ. But no, we don't do it in gentleness. I do not think if Jesus was here in the flesh right now that he would have on a, 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 a Jesus hates homosexuals t-shirt. I do not think if Jesus was here right now, he would post half the stuff we post on Facebook. I do not think if Jesus was here right now, he would tweet the stuff that we tweet. The reality is the Bible tells us be gentle, be respectful. I love how the Bible says it in Jude chapter one, verse 22, where it talks about, it says, snatch some out of the fire. But then it tells us, like, be merciful to those who doubt. That's what the scripture says. Be merciful to those who doubt. Because the reality is the person that you're making this defense to or sharing the gospel with, the Lord may not save them in that conversation, but you may be planting the seed. Like, don't let their experience of the seed be planted be a nasty Christian that doesn't have respect and gentleness for them. Because then the next one of us that come along and try to share the gospel, they're like, uh-uh, I heard it from somebody else and their attitude was nasty. Reality is the Bible says do it with gentleness. Do it with respect. Look at what the text says in 1 Peter chapter 2. This is going back one book, one uh, chapter. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 23 says this. When Jesus was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. If there's anybody who could have had an attitude for injustice, it's Jesus. Like he literally could have blinked his eyes and had thousands of angels come pick him up. And, and, and then even like get back at the people that were doing him wrong. The Bible says he didn't revile when he was reviled. The problem with us is we don't look at and Jesus is our model. That's why the text says in verse 15, but honor, honor in your hearts, Christ. As Lord, the Bible, some, some versions say sanctify him, set him apart. Let Christ be our model of what it looks like when we are reviled. Let's keep going because I'm running out of time here. Verse uh, 15, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. Literally, that means integrity. Having a good, that's the other reason most of us can't make a legal defense for Jesus. It's because our lives, are, we talk about Jesus, but our lives, we, don't, we lack integrity. And so they like, we want to talk to people about Jesus, but they're like, ah, I know you cheat on your taxes, though. Right, right. Like, we want to talk about Jesus, and they're like, yeah, but I saw you coming out the strip club. Yeah. We cannot make a defense for Jesus if our integrity, the Bible says, have a clear conscience. When I first got married to, to Ty, well, that's the only person I've ever been married to. <laughs> when I first got married, I kid you not, this is over 15 years ago, I said, I said to myself, you know what? I'm, I never really cooked dinner. Let me make her a dinner. So I, I didn't, I, she didn't know what I was going to cook, and apparently I didn't know what I was cooking either. <laughs> so I go to the store. We live right next to a Pathmark. So I go to Pathmark, and I get some chicken breasts, and, you know, I get some Crisco, you know, that Crisco that sits on the stove, and it starts to, starts to turn a little gel a little bit, turn a little white. So I got Crisco, and I got some gel, some, some chicken, and I got some seasonings, and, you know, I got some flour. I got home, and I, I did it right. I cleaned the chicken. You know, I, I, I seasoned it up real good. I let it marinate for a second. I, I put it in the, in the batter and I dropped it in the hot grease. But nobody told me I was supposed to leave it in the grease for more than two minutes. I didn't know. I dropped it in for two minutes and said, it's golden brown. It looks good. And I took it out the pan, nice and golden on the outside. We sat down for dinner and you can imagine. And those of you who know Ty, you know that didn't go over well. She was not happy about cutting into bloody chicken. But here's the reality. It looked down on the outside. And when it comes to Christianity, 
Non-believers look at your life and see you all golden on the outside. See you all nice and crispy on the outside. But if they cut into your life, will they find integrity? If they cut into your life, will they find good character? The Bible tells us here, it says, when you give that defense, it says, have a clear conscience. So that when you are slandered, notice the, 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 the certainty of the text. When you are slandered. It doesn't say it's a possibility you're going to get slandered. It doesn't say you might get slandered. When you are slandered. So if you're scratching your head and you're going, why in the world are they slandering me? Why are they reviling against me? Well, the text makes it clear. You will. Like it's inevitable. It's, it's not a possibility. Expect it. Do not be confused when they slander you. Text tells us they're supposed to. Let's keep going, though, because i got to finish up here. Uh, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And you might be saying, why in the world am I going through? Verse 17 really is going to land the plane for us. If you're asking that question in here, why do I have to go through? Like, like first of all, why couldn't Jesus save me and then just swoop me up to heaven? <laughs> why does he leave me here to suffer Verse 17 is going to answer that question for us. For it is better to suffer for doing good. Watch this. If that should be God's will. The reason you are going through is not just because it's good for you, but because it's God's will. I know you're sitting there like, wait, wait, wait. It's your will that I'm going through. And if you're in here and you're like, man, the Lord must be confused. He must have forgot about me. Like God is not confused that you are going through hardship and suffering right now. He's not like the Godhead is not in heaven confused. Like God, the father is not pointing at Jesus going, I thought you died for this. What happened? Jesus is not pointing at the Holy Spirit going, I thought you were a comforter. They don't look comforted right now. The Godhead is not confused. They're not caught off guard. They're not surprised. The Bible just said it's God's will. Like, consider the fact that the suffering you are going through is God-produced. That is what Peter is saying to us this morning. God is not confused. He's very aware of what's going on in your life. And Peter is not, like, Peter isn't, he's not looking at slander and hardship and thinking that there is no enemy. There is no devil. In fact, if you go to chapter 5, I don't want to preach it now, but if you go to chapter 5, verse 8, He's very aware of the enemy's influence in our life. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. And so, of course, there is demonic influence. But the reality is, some of the stuff we're going through is God's will. Like, we believe in the sovereignty of God. We believe that God is in control of everything. That molecule that you, you know, that dust particle you see when the sun is shining through the, the room in the morning, God is ordaining that, but why in the world do we think he's confused and caught off guard like he fell asleep when you were in suffering? He didn't fall asleep. He's very aware. The reality is, what does it look like to live life that represents the gospel when our good is met with hostility? My hope and prayer this morning is that you would walk out of here and not be confused by the slander and the hard sufferings you're going through. My goal and prayer this morning is that you would walk out not only be expecting it, but rejoice in it. Why? Because the Bible says you are blessed when you are suffered. Let's pray. Father, this morning, you do care about how we respond to hardship. You care about how we go through life and how we respond to people that are doing us wrong. You care about that stuff. You do not turn a blinded eye to it. You would not have inspired Peter to write this letter to us, telling us that we are blessed in the midst of suffering if you didn't care about our response. 
Father, your word tells us to be zealous for what is good. Many of us are zealous for getting people back. Many of us are zealous for, for cussing people out. But help us this morning to rethink what it looks like when we suffer. Help us, Lord, to think about that person that is doing us wrong and help us to try to find ways to bless them. Help us to try to find ways to do good to them. Because in that, in that response, you use it so that they may start to ask questions. Who is this Jesus? And when they ask questions, Lord, I pray that you would forgive us for the ungentle responses that we've given. Forgive us for moments that we wanted to floss instead of actually submitting ourselves to the gospel and just talking about Jesus. Father, would you help us? Would you equip us? The reality is, Lord, I don't want to downplay the sufferings in this room. There are people that are going through some hard times. And this morning, I pray, oh God, that you would meet us in our, in our deepest need. And our deepest need is more of you. And focusing on you, I pray that our behavior would line up with what we say the gospel is. Help us to forgive us for being good expositors of the gospel and bad representations of it at the same time. Forgive us, Lord. Pray that we would endure suffering with a glad heart. Here's the reality, Lord. You said with the joy set before you that you endured the cross as painful and ugly and illegal it was. You still endured it. And you did it sacrificially on behalf of somebody else. Help us to lay down our lives in the midst of hardship for you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.